Hey, .NET Rocks fans. Richard and I are going to be at the Dev Intersection Conference at the Marriott Grand Lakes in Orlando, Florida, April 13th through 16th. Come see your favorite speakers, Scott Guthrie, Scott Hanselman, John Papa, Billy Hollis, Brian Noyes, Dan Wallin, Todd Anglin, Tim Huckabee, Michelle Bustamante, Miguel Castro, Duval Lowy, Kathleen Dollard, and many more. Go to devintersection.com to register now. You'll save 200 bucks if you register on or before February 24th, $100 if you register between February 25th and March 31st, and you can save an additional 50 bucks by specifying .NET Rocks is how you heard about the conference. More details at devintersection.com. We'll see you in April. .NET Rocks episode 958 with guest Alan Stevens. Recorded live Friday, February 28th, 2014. This episode is brought to you by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. Online at telerik.com. And by Franklin's.net, makers of Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl and Richard on a, uh, a beautiful day here in New London. Yeah, I got one too. Blue skies, chilly. What do you know? Just in, you know, this is what happens. They, f they, they, they pull the old switcheroo on you. You have a beautiful day for a couple days. And then on Monday, because this is the Friday before the big storm, on Monday, a great big old nor'easter's rolling in. Another one. This is probably our sixth Big <laughs> Don't curse, man. You cursed last time. Oh, I'm sorry. Am I complaining too loud? <laughs> you upset people when you curse. Don't yeah. do it. All right. Let's uh, just roll the music for Better Know Framework. All right, Bob. What do you got? All right. So, as everybody knows, I kind of like to connect. Kind of. Yeah, and I've been searching for a nice, simple solution to uh, write to a video file with a bitmap, frame at a time, because that's what you get, you know, with the color stream. And um, just isn't all that easy in a in WPF anyway to to do that. Um, I've and added to this simple requirement is the fact that the latest SDK from the Connect. Uh, you know, the, the, the 2.0 version requires 64-bit um, specific compilation settings. So, huh. you can't use any CPU. It has to be x64. And so, that sort of weeds out a whole bunch of libraries that you could use. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. But I did find one, and this was at the recommendation of uh, somebody on the alias, Sharp AVI. So, go to sharpavi.codeplex.com and... The documentation is sparse at best, but it does work. Uh, video is created by supplying individual frame bitmaps, actually byte arrays. So you do have to convert it to a byte array, but you know, there's a couple ways to do that. Audio is not currently supported. That's okay. Support for encoding video streams is also there, including our implementations of encoders for Motion, JPEG, and MPEG-4. So that's good. Support for asynchronous writing files. 
Files are produced in compliance with the OpenDML extensions, which allow nearly unlimited file size. Last update is September 2013. And there you go. And it does work in a pure 64K app. And it uh, it's great. It works. Nice. Finally solved that problem. Yeah, one more step, right? Yeah. And it's simple. So um, I may be uh, wrapping that into um, a library that I've created uh, for simplifying Connect programming, which is uh, going to be an open source library. Right now, it's just called Connect Tools, and you can get it at uh, carlfranklin.net. Awesome. Yeah. All right, man. Who's talking to us? Hey, I grabbed a comment off of show 954, and that's the one we just did with Dave McCarter when we talked about rocking your technical interview, which kicked off a lot of conversation. You know, it's really interesting how sometimes not seriously, uh, you know, technical topics are still real hot buttons with folks. Well, those are the things that we tend not to focus on. So that's what people scramble for, you know, when those situations arise. Absolutely. And I really enjoyed David's take on, you know, better have some questions ready, what's appropriate, what's not, that kind of thing. And we were talking also, you know, that got into a real meta conversation about what is it that as an employer we're really looking for in a developer. And Jeff Mazaroff had this great comment. He says, as my mentor and manager once said, interviewing is an art not a science. Mm -hmm. When I interviewed candidates for development positions, I preferred pair programming with them because it answers three key questions. First, what's the technical level of this person, which, you know, helps identify folks that fake the knowledge. Second, how does this person think and solve problems? And most importantly, number three, what is it like to work with this person? Hmm. And I got to tell you, Jeff, I'm all over this. We got to the same point at Strange Loop where we were really finding that I was. I needed enthusiasm and a willingness to put out some effort and an ability to work with my team, and we could fix everything else. You know, if the person cares enough to want to learn, individual skills turned out to be not that important. The ability to learn those skills and actually do the work, and the ability to take criticism effectively and and work with the with the team effectively, those were the rarer, more valuable skills. And how we can figure that out quickly in an interview, I think, is a real challenge. But the idea of pair programming with them, I like that a lot. That's you know, talk about down at the metal. Let's talk about real life. What does it take? Yeah. So, Jeff, thanks so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or on any of our mobile apps. We've got them for iOS, Android, Windows Phone 7 and 8, and Windows 8. And those apps were built by Diatime Enterprises. We'd love to build you an app. Just go to DiatimeEnterprises.com. And before we go any further, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online. They have hundreds of hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts, releasing still around or over 40 new courses every month and offering a 10-day free trial, giving you 200 minutes of access. Pluralsight offers a wide range of topics, including iOS, Java, Android, web development, pretty much anything and everything Microsoft. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And that brings us to Alan Stevens. He is the Winston Wolf of software development. He solves problems. He's a partner at Nerd Hive Industries, LLC, in Knoxville, Tennessee, where he builds kick-ass mobile and web apps. He's also a jerk on Twitter at, at Alan Stevens. Welcome, Alan. Hi, guys. I love, I love bios like that. You, you wrote that, too. Don't put words in my mouth. <laughs> I absolutely did write that. I got sick of all the lame bios I'd written over the years. Yes. You know, it's, it's kind of like resumes, right? They're all bullshit. 
right. uh, you really got to you got to get through it. You know, everybody wants to, to put their best face forward. So I figure, hey, I'm going to undercut myself first and then I can uh, surprise you. Who is Winston Wolf, by the way? Oh, Winston Wolf is a character, the wolf on uh, Pulp Fiction. You ever seen that movie? Uh, okay, you know? well, that explains it. Yeah, he's uh, he solves problems, man. Okay. Yeah. You're the problem solver of software development then. It was hard. And it was the characters played by Harvey Keitel. He's the one who, uh, yeah, cleans up the bodies. Gotcha. Yep. We're sending in the wolf. So, so what are we talking about today, Alan? Oh, I've got a, uh, in my bonnet about the whole software craftsmanship thing. And, uh, you guys give me a podium. So I wanted to kind of unpack some of my uh, thoughts on that. And some alternative points of view I'd like to uh, see become more popular. Okay. So we're talking about the Software Craftsmanship Manifesto? Yeah, well, that's a great place to start. You know, uh, some folks got together and they, they created this manifesto. And, you know, they began a movement. There are software craftsmanship groups around and they meet. And, you know, I, I actually spoke at the local software craftsmanship group and gave a talk called You Are Not a Craftsman. Uh, because I just thought, I think the whole idea of software developers as craftspeople is overrated. I mean, it's almost pretentious because what we do is very practical. It's not an art. So I've got a few thoughts on that. You guys familiar with this? Have you read the manifesto? Oh, sure. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not an aspiring software craftsman. Let's put it that way. So what Uh, don't you like about the manifesto? I mean, what does it say that, that you run contrary to? Well, so the manifesto itself is, is pretty short and, uh, you know, it, 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 here, let's read it. Just not only working software, but well-crafted software, not only responding to change, but also steadily adding value, not only individuals and interactions, but also a community of professionals, not only customer collaboration, but also productive partnerships. Well, that just reads like nothing to me. I mean, I don't even understand why we need to state these things. Okay. And then to have a, a manifesto that people sign, it just, man, come on, it's a manifesto? Really? We need a manifesto to uh, become better software developers? I thought that was kind of just what we did. Mm. And, uh, and I'm not sure where this came from, but uh, it's one of these things. And you guys have seen this. You've been around a while, right? Uh, there's always a new generation coming into software development. And whatever is happening when they come in, that's the right thing. Right. Yeah. And they get this firm, fixed opinion. Right. And so they latch on to things and and people have latched on to software craftsmanship. And, you know, I've been around the block a, a few times. I've got some scars and some bruises and I'm not buying into anybody's uh, line of, of thinking 100 percent. I It takes a lot more than one point of view to build software. And software is built in a variety of ways for a variety of purposes. You know, uh, right. this idea of craftsman as a uh, as kind of a guild mentality. So you, you have this idea of like masters training apprentices and then they become journeymen. And there, there's this in that culture. And that's almost the idea of having uh, some kind of accreditation board for professional software developers. Mm-hmm. And the fact is, if in that environment, there's no room for me because I have no bona fides to be in this business, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. It's just, it's a meritocracy where I was able to come in, find, hey, you know, I, I can do this thing and I can make my way and I can prove myself by my experience. And uh, I don't really want to exclude the next generation of, of people like Alan bumbling in here. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, 
I tend to agree that the I, I'm while I'm not dissing anything in particular because you know if somebody wants to frame their the way that they work in a particular way to make themselves feel good about themselves that's that's perfectly fine with me but I I I do buy into the meritocracy uh, reality which is the the way uh, my generation came in I mean it's basically they said can you do this and I said yes and and I did it not always the right way. But uh, I learned a lot along the way and learned how to do things better constantly, constantly learning how to do things better. And every project that I did, I got a little bit better at. And uh, as the tools and, tr uh, and uh, techniques and um, methodologies grew, I grew with them. And that, that's, the way, that's the way we've done it. You know, there wasn't any, there is, uh, all things aren't known when you sit down to write a piece of software. Sure. And, and you didn't have to come into, uh, you didn't have to find a master programmer and apprentice no. under them, right? You stumbled around. You found the masters once you got in, right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And uh, I, I and I certainly found different masters for different problems. I found um, a, a, a graphics guru for, you know, when I needed somebody in that milieu. And I, I found a communications guru when I needed somebody there. And there wasn't uh, one person that knew everything. There wasn't a Richard Campbell, basically, when I was <laughs> no kidding, <laughs> growing up, uh, you know, in the software world, I didn't I didn't have that luxury. You know, uh, Richard's probably uh, one of the few people I know that reads more than me. Having dinner with Richard is intimidating because he can quote more books than I can. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Try going on a road trip with the guy. <laughs> i can't believe you guys are off the road you're on the road all the time now yeah 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 it's good to be back in the studio richard is the best thing that ever happened to the show oh no it's I'll, very I'll be true sure, i'll be sure and tell mark dunn you said that yeah nice. uh, you know uh, mark dunn <laughs> says the same thing <laughs> i think what he says to me is damn i missed an opportunity <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah so so here's where it really comes down for me is it's the elements that I see that rub me wrong, and you're right, if you want to put a name craftsmanship on what you do, that's cool, that's fine. But what rubs me wrong is pretension and an overemphasis on aesthetics. Because pretension's not going to help anybody, right? If you, if you become some sort of exclusionary person looking down your nose on anybody, man, you're not going to improve the profession of software development at all. You just don't have a chance, right? You just get to surround yourself with a cr crowd of like-minded people and feel good about yourselves. But then the overfocus on aesthetics really gets at me because I live in the real world. I mean, I'm a consultant. I get into other people's code all the time. These people are domain experts. They make shit that works, and it's not pretty. And essentially, that's what all code looks like. The code that is pretty is a uh, rounding error. Mm. You know, it's just uh -huh. not part it's not a part of the domain of software development as far as i'm concerned yeah i i mean i love ideals i always strive to make the best well-crafted you know uh most extensible uh you know the right architecture for the right software you know for the right situation every time and uh, there are ideals but you don't always live up to those ideals well, that's sure. just the and, way that goes and those ideals change over time, right? And, and here's the thing for me, right, is your team, your project 
has a different threshold than anyone else's for uh, quality and changeability. Uh, if you're going to build a website for an event that happens once and it's two weeks from now and it's over, you're not going to go in and build well-crafted code. You're probably going to slap together a WordPress site and be done with it. Every, every project is not the same and it doesn't require the same level of craftsmanship. There is certain code that probably requires craftsmanship, but that code runs in pacemakers as far as I'm concerned, mm. because it has to be right the first time. Mm. Yeah. And the, the other thing that, that bothers me is that there's a sense of devaluing real craftsmen in my mind, because I have a great deal of respect for real craftsmen. What, what comes to mind when you guys think of a real craftsperson? Well, I think of a luthier because I'm a guitar player and I think of somebody who can sort of feel the thickness of the wood, you know, in, in, be one with uh with that and and sort of you know shape make a make an instrument out of a block of wood you know that kind of thing absolutely are you familiar with kevin ryan no uh, if you check out ryanguitars.com you'll see kevin ryan's site and he is an artisan and a craftsman in the purest sense he doesn't just build his guitars by hand. He builds his tools by hand and he goes out and selects his woods by hand. And it is a beautiful process. Wow. And it, I can't relate it in any way to what I see other people doing and what I do as a software developer. It is a beautiful thing. I admire it greatly. And I would love to have a $35,000 guitar built by him. Hmm. Probably not going to happen in the near future. <laughs> Yeah, there. When you when you put those two things side by side, it does seem a little pretentious to call software development craftsmanship. Well, exactly. Now, Richard, what what do you think of when you think of craftsmanship? I, you know, I come more from an engineering background, so I mean, I love the craft of a well built bridge. Mm -hmm. Not that there's really any poorly built bridges today, anyway. They're they've been neglected, but. You know, I, I admire large architecture like that. And the modern bridge is a fascinating thing that takes a lot of different people to make it happen. Uh, and I see it. I know it's engineering because it's mostly about carrying cars across rivers. But I see the art in it as well. Mm. I think it's, you know, the thing about, like, I'm looking at the Kevin Ryan guitars right now. I'm like, they're works of art. Right. Yeah, they but are. they also, you know, would that work of art still be a work of art if it didn't play well? No, absolutely not. It has to have a function, right? And 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 be extraordinary at its function too. I would think if you really want to talk about craftsmanship, isn't it? Not only did I achieve the function, I knocked it out of the park, and it's gorgeous doing it. Yeah, I, I, there's a couple of um, guitars in my arsenal that fall into that category. My Gibson Les Paul is one, and not only does it sound great and look beautiful, but the neck hasn't moved in what, 40 years that I've had this thing. And it would, it'll be 41 years this year that I've had it. And uh, the, the neck just doesn't move. It's just solid, solid, solid. It, it, the right. strings have been off it. It's been refinished, refretted. And, and it, it's a completely solid piece of wood. Right. And in a throwaway culture, we notice craftsmanship like that. Yeah. Because so, you know, all of our technology is outdated so quickly. You know, it's, I think it's a, a racket to suck money out of me because, you know, how many phones and iPods and laptops have I bought? And then I'm going to keep buying more next year. But <laughs> something of, of craftsmanship, like a bridge, 
which can be elegant, right? You can build a bridge that's just this monolithic thing, but you can build an elegant bridge and solve the uh, the problem in a, a craftsman-like manner. Plus, the bridge has to be right up front. There's no refactoring. There's no coming back yep. to it. There's no gathering more requirements after our release. No, you cannot recompile a bridge. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yes. And, and here's another reason I don't see us as craftsmen is because we have this opportunity. Our entire profession is built on the ability to, you don't like it? Here, I can come right back and make it better. I can get it in your hands early and you can tell me what you like and what you don't like. And then I'll know better what you want and I can build that for you. But you don't build a guitar that way and you don't build a bridge that way. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, most of the time... We're talking about things that are built once, used forever, or for an extremely long period of time, and never really altered. Although you do find examples, uh, both in guitars and bridges, where maybe they add a lane or they sling another part underneath it. And I've seen Carl modify a guitar, change the height of the strings, or change the pickups in it. Like Those things can happen. They just seem to be more exceptions. Yes, exactly. Where software, it's... No software's ever finished. Exactly. Just abandoned, right? That's it. <laughs> That's right. Well, let me point you to another example. On uh, Netflix, there is a documentary called Note by Note. And it's about the making of a Steinway piano. And I really love this documentary. But they follow it for the year plus that it takes to build this piano. And they talk to everybody involved in it. And... This thing is amazing. And every one of them is unique. Every Steinway mm. has its own characteristic. They go into a warehouse where pianists are, are trying out the different pianos for their uh, recital. And they have to pick one that really suits them. And they, they're almost like a living thing. And these people pour their hearts and their lives into building these pianos. And it just gave me a real sense of, wow, calling what I do craftsmanship is an insult to, to what I see happening. Well, now, you know, let me, let me play devil's advocate for a minute. Cause I'm trying to, I'm trying to think of myself as the person who takes pride in their work as a software developer sitting out there and thinking, I think I was just insulted by Alan Stevens, who doesn't consider <laughs> me, you know, worthy of calling myself, uh, you know, a craftsman. So, so let's, let's think, just let me think, let me think this through for a minute. Let, let's think about, um, you know, what a, a craftsman has in common with, you know, the, the craftsman, you know, the artist and this, that thing. You know, the, the, this all came about in an age where we're doing a lot of test driven development. So we're spending a lot more time building tests and, and we're, um, breaking down large methods into smaller components more levels of indirection so that they can be more testable. You know, there's a lot of detail work, right? So you're doing, a, you know, maybe a lot more work than somebody who would just sort of come by and say, well, why don't you just, you know, make this work, right? So maybe there's more steps involved. You're taking more time, you know, you're sort of sitting with your your coffee and your, you know, you're, you're taking a lot more time than, uh, than the typical developer would. And so maybe that there's that craftsman sense in that the time and care that we're taking to do it right, uh, you know, qualifies me to call myself a craftsman. Well, that's fair enough. 
By the way, if you feel like you've been insulted by Alan Stevens, you're a good company. Uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the club. <laughs> yes. No, I understand what you're saying, and, uh, and, and I think that's a valid point of view. Uh, so I would counter that by saying, what is doing it right? Because if you're going to sit around and polish and polish code that needs to be out in front of a customer, you're not doing it right. Uh, if you're over-focused on the aesthetics and the perfection of your code and getting it right the first time, especially, uh, then, then you may not be doing it right, actually. Mm -hmm. There is a place that is good enough. And, and this is where I get a lot of pushback. And this is where I've realized what an old fart developer I've become, uh, where, where I say there's good enough and it's okay. Don't be insulted. And, and uh, you know, some people are like, no, there's no good enough. There's only right. And, no, there isn't really. Uh, what's good enough for your project and your team is, is maybe different than another one, mm -hmm. but there is good enough. And the majority of developers, honestly, aren't listening to .NET Rocks or other podcasts. They're not going to user groups. They're not even watching plural site videos, which they should be. They're excellent, but they're not. Hmm. And those are the, the bulk of the people building software. And you know what? They build software that works. It's out there solving problems for people, which is the main goal. Mm. And if we're going to work on our skill at all, I feel like, and this is maybe just from my point of view as a consultant, then the skill I need to work on is helping these people uh, to build their software with their skill level, with the, the level of quality that they can manage. They can't manage. I mean, honestly, the three of us sitting here talking, we can manage incredible quality and software. We're we're obsessed no matter what we undertake. Mm. But most people aren't us by a large degree. Okay. Well, and I guess the question is, are you actually elevating their skill? Is that part of the service you're providing is to move that up for them? It's humility. It really is. Because it is very easy. And, uh, and I'm sure you guys have experienced this to open up somebody else's code and go, Oh my God, what a, what, what were they thinking? Right? Well, they did say consultant is the synthesis of con game and insult. So. <laughs> but that's it is it's, it's my role to see the craft and what they've done. They right. know they've solved a problem for their customer. They know what their customer needs and they've solved it. So if I, but come generally in here, you were called for a reason, I guess my question really is, are you there to help them build better software? Or are you there to cover off the patches where their skills aren't where they need to be to solve the problem for their customer? Well, let's not just think about me. Let's think about someone inside of a team where we're going to assume the average is not the, the software craftsman. What is your role there? If you're going to be a craftsman, you're actually going to go in and you're going to use all of your skill and knowledge and aesthetics to help the people around you coming in with a sense of, oh, you have to do it one way isn't as helpful. Now, my favorite roles and what I, I do mostly these days is I, I consult. I, I don't come in to clean up messes if I can help that. I come right. in to help them uh, keep, keep things afloat, keep things a, above a certain level. But, you know, not be up too uptight, right? I can always come in when people ask, right? Here's the thing. I solve the problem they know they have, and then I wait for them to realize the next one, and then I help them solve that one. But right. I can't go in there and say, oh, no, 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 this, this, is, this can be better, because to them it's solved the problem. They need to move on. They've got people to help, and that's what we're here to do. We're here to help people. Yeah, I mean, that's ultimately the goal to make them more successful. It's just a bunch of ways to solve it. 
And I, and I appreciate the idea that you are helping them to solve it rather than take ownership of it yourself. The challenge then is, you know, aren't you just being a representative of the craftsmanship movement to elevate their craft? Bingo. And that's what I would love to see as the message of, of this sort of movement. In that sense, I am coming in as a journeyman helping, uh, you know, the, the initiates to, to get their, uh, find their way and learn their tools and that sort of thing. And then it's a more of an uplifting movement right. rather than, uh, you know, here's the thing is, is uh, one thing that, that I've seen happen in this movement is people get together on a Saturday and they do a coding dojo. Right. And this is a really kind of an interesting thing, right? They take a problem, they solve it over and over in different ways, and they, they really kind of build up their thinking skills and understanding different ways to use the language and the tools. And, and, and it's great. And they pair programming. I'm a huge pair programming fan. I, I can't think of anything better you can do to improve your skills and, and impre- increase your humility than code side by side with another developer of any yeah. skill level. So this stuff is great. Uh, but then one thing I hear is that this is what everyone should be doing. This is the way to do it. And my thought is, if that's how you want to spend your Saturday, that's awesome. Right. Nobody has to do it. If you want to do it and it makes you feel good and you learn, you get something out of it, and you connect with other developers, great. But there, there shouldn't be any assumption that everyone should be doing that. And if you're not doing that, I mean, hey, I got three teenagers, man. I got a lot <laughs> to do on Saturday. <laughs> hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. You know what time it is? Uh, I must be that happy time again. That's right. It's time to come down from an insulting pillar of pretentiousness to dump a fat <laughs> sack of bad jokes all over every man. <laughs> <laughs> it's time to give away a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But before I tell you who the winner is, I have a message from Telerik. Oh. Mobile apps are dead. What? Watch as Telerik unveils what comes next. Are you stuck with tools and vendors that make you choose between native, hybrid, and web-based approaches? You no longer have to choose. Mobile apps are dead, and there's a new way forward. The new wave is all about building long-lasting and compelling cross-platform and multi-device apps that will forever transform mobile development for the better. Are you ready? Go to www.mobileappsaredead.com where you'll learn how to pick the right approach for each project, tackle the fragmented and dynamic mobile ecosystem, elevate your productivity and shorten time to market, and create compelling experiences across platforms and devices. Go to mobileappsordead.com to watch the free online keynote from Telerik. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. All right, buddy, who's our winner? Today's winner is Andy Philo from St. Paul, Minnesota. Congratulations, Andy. Golf clap. Golf clap get the clappers. Andy. I got the clapper. Nice. And uh, Andy just won a DevCraft Complete Collection. That's just about everything Telerik does in one box. It's a $2,000 value. If you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. Every show we give away stuff. Every December we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member we've done it twice now and of course alan we'd like to ask our guests what would you buy right now with five grand oh i've thought this over man and and i think of all these tech toys that i'd love to buy and build a, a recording studio and and then i realize all oh, that stuff might just set totally uh idle mm. as i'm out busy living my life and i want Fallow. things that 
yeah, I want things that are, that are going to really lift my life. And uh, I started thinking of a project. I've been working with some people that do some uh, GPS stuff. And I thought, wow, it'd be really cool to start, uh, you know, finding ways to track GPS and monitor when people are, are crossing boundaries and, and tracking my environment around me. And uh, I don't really have a specific thing for that. But I just thought, wow, you know, this not just this kind of Google Glass thing with all the information in the world in front of me, but all the information around me and what's happening uh, in a collective sense. And, uh, you know, getting notifications on my phone when, when my friends pass into my part of town, right? Mm. And I can say, hey. You want the ultimate dashboard. What's happening? Yeah, where, where are people going? And so, I don't know. I just thought about playing with, uh, with various uh, GPS tools and monitoring tools and sticking chips in my kids' heads. Awesome. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and spoken like somebody who has teenagers. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> The reason there is, I have Google Glass, and there is an app, and the names jumped out of my head. I think it might be Path, that that actually does that sort of uses GPS data and your orientation, which way you're looking, to do that augmented reality effect of, hey, you're looking at this building. Here's some information about it. Yeah, and it's it's interesting, you know. It's just not that Google Glass is intended as. Uh, augmented reality it's deliberately out of your site and your main sight line you have to look up at it right but it is the beginnings of that idea i don't know what it's going to take to finally build something that does really augmented reality it's not not a trivial problem yeah i think i really just want to find my friends for drinks at conferences better is what it comes down to. <laughs> yeah <laughs> what can we do to eliminate the where are you text right yeah exactly right that uh, you solve that problem that's the problem. You crack that one, and everything else will fall into place. Uh, I have a friend who's a bit of a Mr. Wizard who uh, his uh, his office is just filled with this kind of project. And, and that's the kind of thing it'd be fun to work on with a friend, I think. Yeah, I do think we've not taken enough advantage of this idea of defining boundaries or, you know, sort of capture areas for... Uh, GPS data. So, you know, when I get close enough to my house, you should just be switching over to my house Wi-Fi. You nailed it. Exactly. Yep. Yep. And and things should be happening at the house to prepare for my arrival. And really, uh, the where this came from is a, an idea for uh, a project I'm on where they were talking about, well, when guests arrive at the airport, uh, the hotel should probably know. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. They'd be prepared so that, not that them. complicated a thing. No. Oh, that app I was talking about is called Field Trip which is an excellent name. Nice. Very yeah. cool. Field yeah. trip on the glass, the dedicated glass app for giving you that kind of information. But yeah, geofencing is the sort of archetype technology around when I cross over a particular region, change behavior. You got it. That's exactly the sort of thing I was thinking of. Uh, and, and really more in the sense of my family and my friends, right? Uh, keeping aware of my extended network, because that's really important to me. And we've made attempts at it a bunch of times. Like Trip, it's pretty good at letting me know when other people I know who use TripIt are in my town or where I'm going to be. Uh, right. But I have to go tell TripIt. Yeah. I'm way too lazy for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're hardly traveling at all. Oh, man, I'm taking a break. It's so nice. You guys should try it. <laughs> That's crazy talk. That is crazy talk. Crazy talk. It turns out I have a family I love, and I like to be home on weekends. It's all kinds of things I'd forgotten about. So the other cynic in me says, is Alan just, like, not not willing to work as much now? And he's just, like, you know, software craftsmanship, fah. Well, you know, well, I just want to yeah, do less work. 
No, I, I hear that. And so, so let's take this in a little bit of a different direction then. And let's take it uh, in a more positive direction. Because okay. you know, my skepticism is not pessimism. Uh, I'm skeptical of the message and how far you want to take it. Okay. But I really, I would like to substitute a software craftsmanship movement with a software design movement where people become much more aware of how to design software. I feel like that's totally lost in the shuffle of, of you know, building, uh, doing these little dojos and that kind of thing. Well, yeah, and it's real, right? I mean, it's not, it, it, you're right. It, it, it's, it's not aesthetic in general terms. It's real. Yes, and, th- and there's so many moving parts, and, and every domain you go into, here's the thing that I, I've learned over and over, and I forget, you know, name any boring domain, and once you get into it, it's infinitely complex. Hmm. You just have to set a limit on how far you're going to go in trying to understand and manage that domain, and then you've got to manage all the moving parts, and once I get lost in that, it really doesn't matter if it's a dry cleaner or if it's the space shuttle. So I, I would like to see more of a, uh, of a design movement. And in design, there's a lot of ambiguity, right? That you, you've got to decide what your values are and what the priorities are at this time. So I want to throw out a word that I learned uh, from a fellow named Tal Ben-Shahar. He's got a book called The Pursuit of Perfect, Chasing Perfection. And the word he uses in there is optimalist. Hmm. Uh, you know, uh, back in the, in the end of the roaring 90s, uh, Dave Thomas and uh, Andy Hunt wrote a book called The Pragmatic Programmer, which right. is almost life-changing for me. I got to meet Dave Thomas last year. It's great to talk to him. But I want to substitute optimalist for pragmatic because it's taking it to the good enough stage, right? You're thinking about the system as a whole rather than getting lost in a piece of it. And then focusing on the things that are most effective there. And, and I have some suggestions for that. There, there are two things that I think get lost over and over again. Uh, and they are, remember, three TLAs, two three-letter acronyms, DRY and SOC. I think don't repeat yourself and separation of concerns are the foundation for building a design. You guys familiar with those concepts? Sure, yeah, yeah. So, you know, all the time we see duplication in code and there's a limit to which we want to reduce duplication because you can go forever. It's almost like normalizing a database, right? If you let a DBA loose, they're going to way over-optimize the database to reduce duplication. So you got to find your threshold, but reducing duplication is one of the best ways to keep a system maintainable and understandable because where does it do that thing? It does it here in one place. And then separation of concerns is about where the hell does this piece of functionality go, right? Yeah. It, we, we, we find code, uh, you know, with 4,000 line methods in it. Um, everything doesn't go in the one place, right? Everything doesn't <laughs> go in page load. I think we all know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, figure out where does this code go and reducing the duplication. That's the foundation for design. You're making design decisions at that point. And then it gets into naming. And as you start naming things sanely and putting things places, the system will evolve a design over time. Are you guys familiar with the, with the idea of technical debt? Ward Cunningham coined sure. the term. Oh, of course. Right. So the way I hear it used a lot is people talk about this system has taken on a lot of debt and we need to pay it off. And that's just, to me, refactoring and maintaining a system. 
the way that Ward Cunningham intended this was, I'm going to ship it now, even though I know my understanding and my design isn't complete, because it's better to get in front of a customer than to, to pay this off right now. So we're going to take on some debt as a way of getting it to the customer faster, right? right? I'm going to buy a house and go in debt in a way to get in a house faster, and then I'll pay it off later. So taking on debt is a way to improve your design. Hey, find out what needs to happen. And then I think a movement toward design then is an aesthetic I can totally buy into. Mm. And a design is, is evolving and it's a growing thing. Fred Brooks, uh, are you guys familiar with him? He wrote, uh, mythical man month, mythical man month. Thank you. And no silver bullet. Uh, and he says, he says, grow, don't build software. I right. love that metaphor, you know? And, uh, I feel that way. I've, here's something I've said for years and years, and, and I don't understand why it isn't the case, is that over time, an application should become more maintainable, not less. Yeah, that's if, an interesting idea. You understand the domain better. You figured out what doesn't work, and you put things where they do work. And it, you should come into an existing legacy system and be able to find things working smoothly. Everything's well-oiled. Yeah, that assumes that it was flexible to begin with. Ah, but that's the design, right? Right. That's where software design is so essential. Absolutely. Uh, and, and it's not big design up front. I hope that making that very clear. Software design is this organic process of we're going to start with these fundamentals of dry and separation of concern just to minimize our uh, pain later. And then we're going to start evolving this thing. And, and this is, I think, a great place where uh, more senior developers can uh, help junior developers level up, help them understand why making this choice rather than that one is probably more effective in this context. Because that's why, that's why we're senior developers, because we've done it wrong so many times, we know it's probably better to go down this path rather than that one. Yeah, I, I, I see senior developers as not measured in years, but measured in blood. <laughs> exactly. That's perfect. It's about bleeding, right? It's like, and, it, and I've met senior developers that haven't been developers very long. They just bled a lot. Mm. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you come to that, that point where you're sitting in a meeting and, and you realize you have to say, no, don't do that because my ass <laughs> is going to have to pay it off. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, that's where you talk about you incurred technical debt, you refused to pay it back, and now you're trying to incur some more and you're wondering why the software is getting less and less maintainable. Right. And so this isn't uh, an aesthetic of upfront getting it right and elegant coding in the small, but it's in growing and developing an eye for the aesthetic and elegance of design over time. Uh, and, and, and that's where, you know, if there's a positive push to my, uh, my uh, problems with the software craftsmanship movement, it's that I would like to turn it in that direction because that's where I see the problems, right? I see the problems in two places in software development as I'm in and out of teams. One, communication, human issues, way more important than technical issues in almost every project I've been on. And right. then the second is when you get into the code is because nobody's talking, everybody's thinking different ways and building it different ways. And we're not evolving a design that is a communication through code, right? Developers talking through their code. And once you yeah. understand one another, we know where to put things. We know how to name things. Yeah, and I think that, that is its own language, and it's ultimately the best manifestation of what you were trying to say, what you actually said. Sure. Yeah, so this optimalist attitude toward design is, 
is really what I would like to see more of a focus on. But it's also something that's very hard to do in the small, right? It's hard to sit somebody down and show them this in one sitting. You, you have to go in and out of code. You have to see things change over time to understand. Somebody has to explain their choices. Right. You know? well, and, I'm, and I'm still hung on this technical debt thing. You know, mm-hmm. when you incur debt to a house, there's somebody highly motivated for you to pay that debt back, where mm-hmm. it's remarkably easy to ignore oh, yes. uh, technical debt. Right. And it has, that's why it has to be taken on very consciously. You know, it's, it's an intentional way of building and designing software. But you're absolutely right. If somebody's uh, going to assume that we don't have debt and we don't have to pay it off. So after every release, right, you push it out there, you know, you've taken on some debt, but then you learn and you, you pay that debt off as you go with each release. Uh, but that doesn't imply just plowing forward and building on uh, a weaker and weaker foundation. You want to you want to strengthen it as you go, and, right. and that's my idea. It should it should grow more maintainable, not less. And I say that as somebody who works in you know fifteen twenty year old code. Uh, in some sense, it's not maintainable because it's really hard for me to find things, and things are very uh, tightly coupled. But in another sense, it's solid. It's run for twenty years. Right. People use it every day. All I can do is break it. Yeah. Well, and you wonder if it shouldn't be more resilient to your breaking. You know. You leave a, a piece of structural wood in a house for 30 years, you can't even drive a nail into that wood anymore. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, older wood is, the older the house, the the more that's true. Right. Two by fours actually used to be two inches by four inches. It's mm. an interesting thing. So uh, something uh, a fellow named David Harvey said really sticks with me. He says, being against craftsmanship is like being against world peace kittens or sliced bread. So I really <laughs> feel like I come out as, as a real downer on this. But every time I see somebody push for this craftsmanship, I push back with this idea of, well, are you being, are you being humble? Are you being productive? Are you, are you lifting others up or are you just kind of putting yourself in a monoculture? Those right. are the things that I really am pushing back against. But I'm all for, you know, Kaizen, the, the idea of the continuous improvement from, uh, from Lean and the Toyota manufacturing system. This idea of ongoing improvement Absolutely. We should all be doing that. In fact, that should be in any profession. I, I would hope we didn't even have to say that out loud. Sure. It's required. <laughs> well, yeah. so, I mean, couldn't you add to that axiom if you're not improving your process, you're damaging your process? Like it, it invariably comes apart if it's not paid attention to. Especially in this profession, in this field. I, I kind of see this as just a, maybe just sort of something that says, I care about what I do. And I'm signing this manifesto, you know, putting my name to it so that I can point people here and see that, oh, no, I I do indeed care about what I do. Look, you know, my name is on here. Um, Yeah. Is that that really what this is for, do you think? Well, I think it's a mirror. Because it really is. I mean, this is all common sense when it comes to software. Sure. And, and, you know, when when I look at the manifesto, it's very simple and it's also very broad, which is very. kind of an odd thing to sign. I'm like, well, yes, obviously, but it's also a bit of a mirror because uh, what I'm responding to is the way that I've seen other people look at it and see what they want to see and then move in this direction. And I just think this is not helping the profession. This is not, I try to think of the entire profession of software development and how to deal with the real world of software development. You know, the, the thing about Fred Brooks and why I really love his opinions is he's worked on huge projects. Mm. His, you know, he has, he has bled a lot. 
And I prefer those attitudes, his attitudes, over someone uh, who, who has a very narrow perspective on the aesthetics of their code. Clean code is a word that I, a phrase I really despise. Because, you know, what the hell does that mean? Right. Code that, code that runs is clean in one sense. It compiles and it solves problems. Uh, now, I certainly have an attitude of being a professional. Uh, that there's a great uh, phrase Ward Cunningham said. And when I heard it, and this is why Ward Cunningham is such a genius. Uh, he said that once you've solved the problem, you have to go back and make it look like it was easy to solve. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that yeah. beautiful? Yeah. Because that means when you're gone and 18 months later I show up, I can see how you solved the problem. Now, that's a fair amount of clean code, but don't go too far with that, right? Name right. things clearly, break them about it, uh, apart into obvious ways, remove the duplication, leave me some breadcrumbs. So that's what I need. What I'm getting here and where my mind is going is we have two problems. We have the problem of communicating big ideas, which requires distillation into catchphrases like well-crafted software buzzwords, like steadily adding value, productive partnerships and things that can be easily remembered. And, you know, however, those things, as you say, are so broad that people see what they want to see in them and then sort of hijack them for their own purposes. And look, this is an old story in humanity, right? I Absolutely. Mean, st stories have been hijacked for, the, for their own personal purposes and redefined all throughout human history for good and for ill. And you know what I'm talking about here, and I don't sure. even have to say it. But um, it's going on right now, all over the world. So, so therein lies the problem. I mean, in order to say we want to communicate this idea that we want to make good software and we want to all feel, you know, all, all agree that we want to commit to quality. And, you know, it's, it's like the, the, the corporation that says quality, Ford, quality is job one. Like they hang it in every room in the factory. You know what I mean? And we right. all agree that quality is job one. Yes, yes, we all, and it pumps us up, but but we all sort of assign what we read, what we want to read into it. It and, feels and, like a, an office space when it says, is this good for the company? It's almost this empty slogan at a certain point. Yeah. And so, and so really what I'm thinking is it's not so much a a problem we have with the intent behind the the manifesto, but what people have read into it, right? And and what direction can it go? You know, you uh, you, you you made me think of uh, Joseph Campbell again when you talk about hijacking these stories, right? Well, I mean, because, he, he he's yeah. the person who gave me the perspective to look around it and through time and and see the similarities in these things. Yes, sure, sure. So you know, what story is the software craftsmanship? Try, a movement trying to tell. I, I see there are, you know, it's not one thing. There are many people involved and I think all of them are well-meaning. You know, I'm just pushing back with my attitude about, I think maybe it would be better if we focused it in this direction and I don't have any authority position, but I have an opinion mm -hmm. <laughs> and you guys are giving me a, a place to air it. Sure. Uh, you know, there's a story there about software craftsmanship. There's a story there of a sense of, uh, of resenting uh, being made into a cog, right, into a system where all code is the same, just crank it out. 
and uh, wanting to to value what you do uh, more highly. And I, that's great. Just be sure that that doesn't lead you down a narrowing path, but it leads you to a, a path of growth and, and broadening and reaching out to others and extending these ideas and helping to lift others up. Mm. That's what I want to see. Uh, I, you know, I, I just cannot, I cannot belittle people that come in and do their job and go home if they're, even if they're less skilled than me. Mm-hmm. You know, there's another piece to this as well, which is, and we started off this conversation talking about the fact that we're all old guys who yeah. have really grown <laughs> up with this industry. Aren't things different for somebody coming in new today to mm-hmm. what is clearly something more established and that we've, we've got to provide paths for novices as well? Well, and I think that's part of what's proposed there is that either we provide paths but who defines the path, right? And and are all paths the same? You know, I work with, uh, I have a great group of guys here at Developers in Knoxville that we meet for beers. After years of uh, going to user groups and speaking and or just attending, waiting till we all go to beers afterwards, we figured out, let's just go to beers. Uh, and what I discover there is that we live in separate worlds, right? Uh, you know, some some people aren't aware of, these guys are experienced software developers working today and aren't aware of, of half the stuff I'm doing and, and everything they're telling me about, I've never heard of, or maybe if I've heard of it, I've not used it in production and it's every day to them. So there can't be just one path of, of you know, toward mastery, right? Because it's such a broad industry encompassing so many things. Yeah. Aren't we just fighting this whole idea of the one right way, whether it's language development methodology like these, all the same problem. There's more than one way to be successful here. Well, you nailed it, Richard. Exactly. The what I see in the mirror of the Craftsmanship Manifesto is this idea of a monoculture and one right way. And I'm always pushing back against that. You know, my experience has taught me to appreciate what some might call mediocrity. When that mediocrity solves problems for people and brings money in and feeds families. What's mediocre about that? Yeah. How do you judge mediocrity? That's really odd. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. It, you know, so my job is to come in and, and help wherever I can, whether I'm an employee on the team or whether I'm coming in as a consultant. Uh, you know, I really try to broaden my uh, my consulting practice so that I'm doing things that I'm not too familiar with. And then in other places, I'm kind of helping mentor and bring other people along because I'll get stale. I'll become, you know, a one trick pony if I don't do that. At the same time, it's like, what's the measure of successful software per se? Because just because it compiles doesn't mean it is actually useful. Is it better to build the right thing or build it right? I think it's better to build the right thing, but figuring what the right thing is is not a trivial goal. Oh, no, no. I have a friend uh, who was a company uh, back in the late 90s. I uh, started out on a project. That was where they, they – it was a startup, and they were going to go in this one direction, and they had this product. And, uh, you know, 2000, everything dropped out. But they found people using their product for a completely different purpose. And so they pivoted, and they started selling that, and now they're fairly successful. Yeah. And now they're building the product they did in the late 90s, again, selling it to these people that are buying their existing product. Hmm. Wow. You find the right thing. And then later on, what you thought was the right thing may be, may become useful again. Serendipity. Uh, yeah. But that, you know, that's a, that's a common story of startups where you, you think you know what you're building. Uh, and then you find out your customers need something else. And, hey, I'll build that. I'm here to solve problems. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Any, any other further reading or examples that uh, you can point us to? 
I really think that, uh, that the oldies are the goodies. You know, I think if you, if you read the pragmatic programmer, which is now 15 years old, uh, I reread it, I don't know, five years ago or so. And, and it's just a really good exposition on the basics of here are some good ideas to help you get going in the, in the right direction. You know, there's been a lot of ink spilled on how to build software, but some of those fundamentals, you know, I can't get away from the mythical man month. Mm-hmm. I quote it all the time. I point people to it all the time. And those simple lessons from the late 60s are ignored every day in our industry right now. Yeah. The subtitle of the Pragmatic Programmer is From Journeyman to Master. Yeah, it is. You're right. And, you know, we get back to this idea of Apprentice, Journeyman, Master, mm-hmm. which I, I, I hear you being very resistant to. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because there's no one way to get there. Now, if it's a metaphor, like for myself to move from apprentice to journeyman to master in my own experience, I get it totally. If it's a, an externally uh, defined culture, if it's a guild, you know, the guild system uh, resists uh, economic growth and creativity and changing with the time. I don't think it's been proven to be a good system uh, over time. Hmm. That's that, but that, you know, that's my personal resistance, right? I'm looking in the mirror here, and that's what I'm seeing. One of your uh, links here is the Dreyfus model of scale acquisition. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, so the Dreyfus model, are you guys familiar with it, right? Well, yeah, in the last model, the expert is transcending reliance on rules, guidelines, and maxims, and ha- having the vision of what is possible. In other words, there is no system. It's you and your intuitive grasp of the situation based on your deep understanding. Right. Well, it's the Zen Cohen at that point, right? Right. Uh, Every every, uh, question is answered by a master with another question. Right. Because there is no one right way. Yeah, the Dreyfus model is really helpful to me, and I always seem to point it out, in that the bulk of people under the Dreyfus model of skill acquisition, you know, from beginner to, to master, the bulk of people are at the advanced beginner stage, and that's where they stay. Yeah. And well, I would say, you know, you're clearly at the expert level where you uh, you do not want a system telling you what uh, you what you should do next. And but there are so many people that are just dying for some direction and some some guidance. And um, you know, the, that's where I think the the whole uh, apprentice thing is is really important. I I wouldn't have made it in this business without my mentors. Oh, good goodness, yeah. no. Yeah, I mean, I'm not in any way trying to belittle the idea of having mentors, but I have many mentors. Yeah. You know, you go back to the guild journeyman. The whole point here was you got to a certain level as an apprentice where a given master, to resist you believing that there was only one right way, sent you to other masters. Mm. You were the journeyman. Right. So that you broaden your view on your craft. And that was what my point too was when uh, you know my my mentors were experts in their different fields, you know there was not there was there wasn't one person who helped me in every field. Sure, yeah, sure. and we could be having the same conversation here yep. if we were talking about uh, software as the metaphor of being uh, construction or manufacturing sure. or uh, creative writing is I. I I think that's a great metaphor for software development Mm. because of the the idea of writing many drafts and that sort of thing. So any one of them is going to fall down. uh, And with any one of these metaphors becomes ascendant and is seen as the one true way. Well, 
it's it's like a, a Japanese poet uh, wrote in a koan, and I cannot find the source of where I heard this, but it's a, the koan basically said that not koan. Uh, what's the Japanese poem with the with the syllables? Haiku. Haiku. Thank you. Uh, the the rough English translation was it's like nothing they compare it to, mm. the moon. Yeah. There's another one. Only a Sith speaks in absolutes. <laughs> Amen, brother. Yeah, you know, that's not a bad way to just stop that craziness in a meeting. <laughs> you know, right there. It's like, hey, bang on. Yeah. Indeed. Right. So, you know, I think it's fair to push back against any, uh, you know, I'm playing devil's advocate to the software craftsmanship movie. Okay. And, and I feel like that's the best contribution I can give right now. I'm not belittling anybody. Uh, yeah. But you guys know me. I'm always happy to, uh, to take a side of the conversation just to keep it going. All good points, Alan. Thank you very much for uh, joining us for this hour. Hey, thanks for letting me uh, have this conversation with you. I miss you guys. I hope to see you on the road again next year. Yeah, we hope to see you too. I'm sure we will. Absolutely. Take care. All right, bye-bye, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the MC.